looking in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and uh, as we dig into God's word about what it means to be, again, a person after God's own heart. We've been looking at David's life, and we've been trying to discover uh, if David was called by God a man after his own heart, what does that mean? And one of the things that we've been learning is is that uh, David was certainly not a perfect man. He was very broken, very flawed. But in spite of this, God is going to use him in some amazing ways. And God, in spite of his brokenness, says that he is a man after God's own heart. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? If you want to be a man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart, well, a person after God's own heart, it means that the things that are on the heart of God are on your heart. That the things that burden God burden you. The things that are important to God are important to you. And so we're picking up on some qualities and characteristics of David. If you want to, again, we, look, we see his flaws and we recognize his flaws and we're given his flaws to realize that he's not some superhero. He's a man just like we are people. And yet there are things about him that characterize him in this nature. And so here is what we see. Last week we talked about how David lives a life of surrender. David walks with God. And he talks with him about everything. In fact, the places where he messed up most was when he stopped talking to God and he took matters into his own hands. And that's when he made messes. But when he would talk to God and God would talk back with him, we see that there's this relationship that David carried on. Now, what I want to talk to you about today is what we see in David as we're in 2 Samuel 6. David was not only surrendered, but David lived a life that was a life of worship. He was a worshiper, and he was passionate about what it means to worship. Now, we teach all the time around here, because the Bible teaches that worship is much more than just when we sing on Sunday morning or gather on Sunday mornings. But for our purposes today, because we're going to talk about a celebration and a, and a corporate gathering of God's people in celebration to the presence of God, when I talk about it today, we're going to be kind of specifically addressing our celebration of God, our weekly time where we come together and we celebrate all that God has done in our lives, uh, right? And we come in and we praise him and we worship him and we lift our lives up to him and we celebrate what he's done within our lives. And so I know this, that worship, when we talk about worship, it's, it's, it can be a controversial issue. For some people, it's one of the most controversial things within the context of the church, People pick churches oftentimes based upon their preference of worship style. There are people who will come to EVC, and I know some of you have because you absolutely love our worship style. You love it. And who couldn't whenever you have Pastor Danny leading an amazing team, right? I mean, we love. Can we just give it up for them? Because I want you to know they work hard. Many of you who are on the worship team, I thank you for that because you give up a lot of time and a lot of hours to glorify God, and I thank you for that. But we also know this, that there are people who have left our church because they don't like it. And, and it's just a reality. I just want to say it, okay? Sometimes uh, maybe it's not your thing, and maybe you don't really, that's not your style. You don't like electric guitars or drums or whatever, and I get that, okay? Do you know that people will oftentimes pick a church when they pick a church, sometimes it'll be over, the, the worship will be more important to them than even the doctrinal teaching. That often happens. You know, I don't know so much about what that guy says, but I really, I just feel great whenever, I'm just telling you that, that, that it's an issue that people will pick a church over. I'm not telling you that's right. I'm just saying that often happens. And, uh, and so some of 
us come from, we come from very different backgrounds. And I love that about our church. We are becoming more and more culturally diverse. We come from all kinds of different backgrounds. Maybe for some of you coming into church, the church maybe you grew up in, it was a more quiet type of church. Maybe it was a little more solemn, maybe a little more reverent. It could have been uh, people even told you, be quiet. Shh. I mean, we're, don't be so quiet or so loud in church. And uh, some of you maybe come from a, a Baptist background where you kind of had a certain way. And uh, come on, how many of you come from a Baptist background? All right, it's okay. You can raise your hands. It's okay. All right, we, we can raise our hands. All right, that's a joke. And, uh, and so I do too. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. So you have a different background. I can tell who my Pentecostal friends are that are here because you're out in the lobby stretching before we get going, man. You're getting warmed up. You don't want to pull a hammy while we're worshiping. And I love that too. I love and I think what makes the church of Jesus beautiful is the different backgrounds. And that's what makes us so uh, beautiful before the Lord, okay? And, uh, but worship style is a big deal. Did you know this? Even for people who aren't believers yet. Do you know that 1 Corinthians chapter 14 will tell us that unbelievers will come into your worship experiences, Paul talks about, and, and they will see either what's going on and they'll be turned off by that, or he talks about it in chapter 14, verse, I believe verse 25, where he even says, even if they're not believers, they will recognize in the people of God that there is something significant that is happening among God's people. And they realize that. And I wonder as I read that, I wonder what people think when they come in and they, when they're observing and checking everything out, I wonder if people believe that God is moving among us. You know, so we want to talk about that just a little bit today. So as we start working through this passage, we're going to work as quick as we can through this chapter. But I want you to think about your worship, okay? And your, and again, remember, I'm not talking about we do worship Monday through Saturday. We don't worship only one day a week. I get that. But I'm talking about when we corporately gather together and how you express your gratitude to God. Look at verse 1. Then David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. He led them to Baalah of Judah to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord. Every time you see Lord in its capital, L-O-R-D, that is Yahweh. Okay, so every time we're talking about this, this is, this is the one true God. The Lord of the heavens armies, this ark of God who is enthroned between the cherubim. A cherubim is a type of angel. And so you're, you may be like, what is this ark of God? Well, uh, how many of you have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, many of you have seen that. And, it, and, and it's, it's what's kind of that whole movie is about from years ago. And this is what it would look like, overlaid with gold. And you see there was uh, in Exodus a, a very particular way that God told them to make it. Now, what's inside this ark? In this ark are the tablets of the Ten Commandments, the original ones that God wrote. So you have the Word of God. You also have a jar of manna when Israel was delivered out of Egypt. God did what? He provided daily manna for them. So you have a representation of the provision of God. And there's also Aaron's staff that is actually still budding. And it is a representation of the power of God. The ark is this representation of the very, you got to hear this, presence of God. 
When they saw this, they were reminded of the presence of God as he delivered them out of the bondage that they were in for 400 years in Egypt as slaves. And when they would see this ark, it would remind them of this. It was symbolic of God's presence. And you need to know not only the symbolism of it, but in this time, the presence of God was literal in this, okay? And so as we will see now, you may be thinking about this now, where, why was the ark somewhere else? Why, why did they lose this? Well, they had, and I'll explain this, presumed upon God as they had moved into a battle with the Philistines. This is back in 1 Samuel, uh, and you can go read about it yourself. And when they went into a battle, they, they weren't even walking with God at this time. They just Wanted to, wanted to have a leg up on the Philistines, and they knew that the ark of God had helped their forefathers in many ways, and so they took it into battle, even without asking God. They just did it, and they were just going to try to kind of take things into their own hands, and so what happened? They ended up losing the battle, and, and then they were mortified by this. The Philistines, as they whipped them, took the ark. How'd you like to be on that watch where you lost the very ark of God? Because of your presumption. Because here's what God is saying. I'll not be treated like just some good luck charm for you to take into your battle and for you to do it your way. I didn't tell you to do it that way. And so this is what happens when we do things our way. It ends up being a bit of a disaster. So the Philistines took it. And again, you can read this. It's crazy, man. It doesn't even seem real. But this story, as you read it, it's not fabricated here. This is what the story tells us. They took it. And they put it in their temple where they worshiped a false god uh, named Dagon. And they set it next to it. And if you read this, here's what you're going to see. Because of the Philistines' presumption and not understanding the very presence of Yahweh himself, you'll read this, that overnight people start breaking out with tumors. That sounds like a lot of fun, right? They're getting tumors all over their bodies in the city. Um, they, they come in the very next morning. The city is overrun with rodents and rats are running everywhere, all right? Tumors are everywhere. And they come in and Dagon is face down. And the people are like, well, maybe, that, maybe just something happened and it fell, you know, he, Dagon fell on his face. So they put him back up. They wait another night. They come back in. Not only is Dagon face down, but his hands have been chopped off. His head is off, and the people in that Philistine town said, get that thing out of there, send it to another Philistine town. Guess what happens in the next Philistine town? It happens there too. These tumors start following people around. They send it to another town. Finally, the third town is like, get the ark of the people of Israel, the ark of Yahweh, out of here. I mean, we got tumors everywhere, and so they put it on a, a new cart, and we'll come to that in a second, uh, oxen are pulling it, and they are miraculously taking it back in the direction of where the tabernacle of God is, where the ark would have been kept. And there's this, and they send a care package that says, "I'm sorry." And you know what they put in the care package? They put golden tumors. I don't even know what that would have looked like. Uh, nothing says love more than that. And I'm sorry. And golden rats. And they sent it back and they basically were saying, you can have it back. We don't want that thing around us. And we are sorry we ever even took it. Okay. And so again, it's really bizarre, a bizarre story. There's this guy named Shemesh who sees it coming. And Shemesh sees it, and he's like, free ark, cool. So he takes it, he puts it in his, in his house, 
And guess what happens? Some people decide they're going to take a peek and look inside. Not a good plan, all right? Again, disrespecting the presence of God and the ark of God. And so uh, if you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know that when the Germans looked at that uh, and, and looked inside of it, that their faces melted off. Now, this doesn't tell us that their faces melted off, but it doesn't say that they didn't, okay? But what it does tell us is that, check it out, 70 people died that day. God's making a point about something that we're going to get into here, about his presence and the holiness of his presence. Shemesh is like, man, I want that out of my house, all right? And, and so a guy named Abinadab gets it, and he puts it in his house where it stays for about 20 years. And it stays in a place that's out of, you know, out of sight, out of mind. I imagine some of his friends would come over. They'd be like, hey, Benny, can we take a look at that? I mean, what is that back there? And he's like, I wouldn't go near that if I were you, okay? So 20 years, it's it's out of sight, out of mind. This David has now been elevated to king. And I just want you to understand the background of this because why is David having to retrieve it? What does this mean? What does it mean when people are actually dying in its presence And I want you to see, here's what it says, verse 3. They placed the ark of God on a, what does it say, on a, let's bring that up on the screen, please, verse 3. They placed the ark of God on a new cart. That's important. Underline that. Take note of that. And they brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart that carried the ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the ark, and I assume that Uzzah was behind it, okay, as they're guiding it in, and the, and the oxen are taking it where it's supposed to go. And David, and I want you to see this, church, verse 5, David and all the people of Israel, God's people here, and let me ask you a question, okay? Third service, help me out. Are you the people of God, church? Are you the people of God? Yes, amen, right? And I want you to see what they did as they recognized finally the presence of the Lord is entering into this place. I want you to see all the people of Israel were, say it with me, celebrating before the Lord. And what were they doing? Singing songs. I mean, they were getting down. Singing songs, playing all kinds of musical instruments, electric guitars, Probably somebody's thumping the bass. I imagine drums, okay? No, it says all the instruments they used. They might have even had kazoos. I don't know. The point is, is there, this is what my pastor years ago used to call this, and, and I never really understood this. He called it a hallelujah hootenanny, right, guys? Y'all remember that, okay? Uh, and I don't even know what a hootenanny is, but I think this is it, okay? And, and, and the point is, the people of God are celebrating, They're celebrating what God is doing among them. They're celebrating God's presence, and they're doing this loudly. They're doing it loud before God. All right, now there's moments where we should be quiet and still and reverent, and there's also moments I want you to see where there should be a celebration, a celebration of all that God is doing. And I want you to see this, verse 6. Now this gets very interesting. When, When they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, The oxen stumbled, and Uzzah, remember the other guy, one of Abinadab's sons, reached out his hand, and he steadied the ark of God. In other words, he put his bare hand on the ark of God, and you're going to see 
that's a no-no. Okay, and you're going to be like, what? I don't get this. I want to try to explain it. He puts his hand on the ark of God, the very presence of God. Then the Lord's, what does it say next? You mean God gets angry? Yeah, he does. Uh, he, God is a God of love. And aren't you thankful for that? Amen, right? And grace. But I, I think we, in our generation, forget God also is a God where there is wrath. And, and we, we need to understand that there is, a, there is an attribute of God that is wrath. But when we understand the wrath and we understand the love, we can't understand the love until we understand the wrath. And we got to understand this, okay? When we see this, it says that God, the Lord's anger was aroused against us. And, and this gets serious. And God struck him dead because of this. I don't mean to laugh, but it's like, wow. Oh, my goodness. When it says because of this, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which these documents that were recorded, right, back in that time, the Dead Sea Scrolls, it records this way. He was struck dead because of his irreverence. I want you to hear this. Because of his casual, this is what it means, an irreverence, because of his casual way that he considered the presence of Yahweh. The irreverence, without just, just kind of a flippant mentality. But, you, you know, we look at this and we're like, well, what is the guy supposed to do? I mean, he was, he was trying to do the right thing, and I agree. He, I believe that he was. But he, he, he truly, just as the Philistines did not recognize the power of God's presence, many of the people of Israel still didn't get it. And God is going to teach some lessons, and he's teaching anger, or, or he's teaching the, the people of Israel about, about his holiness is what we're going to see. David was, I want you to see that Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. There is nothing that will mess up your celebration a little faster than that. This guy is struck down in the presence of this. Oh my goodness, what's happening here? Dead, all right? And, and it says this, David was... David was what? Angry. He was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. David even names this place where God's anger was aroused against Uzzah here. And I, I just want us to think about this, okay? This is important because when I read this at face value and I don't dig in and I don't try to study this and understand it, at face value, I know we look at this and we think, man, that is harsh, Right? It, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I, I look at that and I think, does the crime really, uh, you know, is the punishment justified here? I mean, I mean, what was the guy supposed to do? All right? I mean, he was trying to do God a favor, wasn't he? God, he, he saw it going over. It was going to fall in the dirt. And, and I just want you to see something here. David gets upset with God. He's upset with God. And there are going to be things that are... Friends, this is in here. I love the honesty of the Bible. There are going to be things that are in the Bible that are going to offend you. There are going to be things that are in the Bible that we can't get with our mind in a way that God sometimes does something. And, and, and I love that it doesn't shy away from this. David, a man after God's own heart, was upset with God at this point. But here is the thing. David, David didn't fully understand why this happened. David had to dig in. Now, I want to tell you this, that if struggling with 
with some of my understanding of God, if, if just the fact that I struggle m- means that I can't be a believer in him, and, and, and then here's the thing, then, then I couldn't be a believer because there are things that I'm not going to be able to comprehend. There are things that I'm not going to be able to, to understand why God would do it a certain way. And this is when I have to begin to press into some things that, number one, I can study and learn a little bit more. Secondly, I need to understand that God is going to do things that I can't always comprehend. God is, here's what's happening here, God is showing us that he is God and that we are not. And that we don't always get to call the shots on things. There are things that he understands that we can't perhaps comprehend. But I want you to know that there is there's something that we can learn out of this, okay? Again, but I love this, the honesty of it. David, verse 9, David was now, what does it say next, church? Afraid. David had a fear that was coming over him, and, and he asked this. He was afraid of the Lord, Yahweh. Even though he was struggling with some anger, he was gaining a very healthy respect for the holiness of God, and he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? You know why I think David's asking that? Because he understands what a sinner that he is. And he understands, how, how do we do this? David's now king. David is now royalty. And I don't care who you are, when you begin to get power in any kind of way, we know that power that when people get it, if there's not accountability there, it can corrupt us. I don't care who we are. It happens to people because we're broken. And I think in this moment, David, who is the new king, remember Saul becomes a king. Saul had some humility at the beginning, but we begin to see that he starts to get full of himself and he's very prideful and he's arrogant and he acts like he doesn't need the Lord. He doesn't follow the Lord. And I think in this beginning stage of David's kingdom here, Here's what God is saying is, you may be a king, but you are not the king. God will bring us down, won't he, sometimes when we start getting full of ourselves? He will bring us back down to to earth. And what God is doing is he is reminding David of who David was in his sinfulness, and he is reminding David of who God is in his holy perfection. This is what is being shown here, okay? So David's now afraid of the Lord. And look at verse 10. So David decided at this point, we better do a little bit of research here, okay? I don't know that we know what we're doing. So David decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Instead, he took it into the house of Obed-Edom and of Gath. And this is interesting. This isn't even... This isn't even an an Israelite here. This is someone else. And he's like, hey, will you hold on to this while we figure some things out? Which there's something to this. That guy's like, what? But this guy apparently has some, I want to show you this. He has some respect and some reverence. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it's in his house for about three months. And I want want you to see something, okay? We're going to see some observations. Then we're going to have some application here. But one of the ob- observations that we take out of this is, let's, let's talk about what happened to Uzzah. And the problem is, is this. The problem is the presumption. The presumption from the people of the Philistines and their treatment of the very presence of the ark of God. Even the presumption of the people of Israel, the presumption of David, and, and the presumption of, of even Uzzah, who was trying to do God a favor here, but I want to show you something. I mean, it's like, come on now. It's like, 
seems like he was trying to do the right thing. Well, I get this. And we think that the problem is with the punishment. But the very point of the story, the problem is not with the punishment. The problem is with the presumption. The presumption of those, and and let me explain this to you, right? It seems that we would at least look at this and think that the crime seems to be more severe or the punishment seems to be more severe than what the crime is here. But again, the story is showing us that the problem is not with the punishment, it's with our presumption when we consider God's perfection, when we consider his holiness, when we understand this, okay? And I understand if you think that way because I look at it at face value and I can see this. I want you to see as we look in this, where was their presumption coming from? Number one, they weren't following the prescription of what God had given them and how to take care of the ark, In Exodus chapter 25, we won't read it today, but you can study it for yourself. God had specifically told them how they were to transport this. They weren't to do it with oxen. This is what you got to hear. Who had showed them how to do it like that? The Philistines. And God's saying the Philistine way is the world way. I told you how to do it in my word. And you have ignored my instructions. And so this is what happens when you ignore my instructions. The Israelites chose their way, the expedient way. It, maybe it was the easier way, and so therefore they weren't, they decided they were going to just do it their way on the new cart. Remember the new cart? That's what it was talking about, the new cart. The easier way, the better way, it's easier than God's way. And isn't that true sometimes? Is that some of the things that God calls us to, they're not easy. The world's way is easy, isn't it? The world's way is the expedient way. And many times we buy into that and we do the world's way. And this is what we see is that God is showing us. Now, the bigger part of the issue in the story was Uzzah's presumption. He was unaware of his own sinfulness. And he was unaware of the magnitude of the holiness and the presence of God. And, and I know we look at this and it's like, again, man, it seems like he was doing the right thing because Uzzah was thinking, I can't let it fall down into the dirt because the dirt is what? Dirty. This is the point. Uzzah, what he failed to recognize is that because of his sinfulness, because we're all sinners, aren't we? We are all sinners. I love the way one commentator put it. The way he put it was the dirt had never rebelled against a holy God. But we as sinful human beings, we've rebelled against God, thus we are sinners. Thus one sin is what makes us a sinner. And Uzzah, what he had failed to realize is that his hand is far filthier than the dirt is. Because he's a sinner. And because God is perfect. And because God is holy. The scripture even tells us this in Now, I know that we're like, well, I don't know that I'm that bad. And I believe you are a pretty good person. I believe that about you. I try to live uh, and be a pretty good person. I believe that all of you probably do, right? But the reality is, is it only takes one sin to defile me. It only takes one sin. And I have much sin in my life. I assume that you do as well, if we're honest. And it takes one sin to make me into a sinner. And therefore, it is the sin in our lives that, that... It cannot be in the presence of holiness and the holy 
presence of God. Our sin is what makes us infinitely more offensive to the holiness of God than any dirt that is on the ground. And I know that's kind of hard to hear, and maybe it might feel a little bit harsh. And again, I know you're probably a pretty good person, but in our presumption, we presume, we presume that we are, we are better than what we actually are. Even though, again, you may be pretty good, but you, here's, what, here's where we're going wrong. We're comparing someone who is pretty good to someone who is perfectly holy and sinless. And Scripture even says that in Isaiah, it says our righteousness, our good things we do in comparison to a holy God are like filthy rags. Haggai tells us this, that God is of such pure eyes, the prophet Haggai, that he cannot even behold evil or look upon wickedness like this. And so, again, Uzzah's presumption was to reach out and touch this. The other day, I was uh, eating, a, uh, I was pr- I prepared some brown rice. I'm trying to do a little better, take care of myself, right? And so I made some brown rice, and I was looking down in, in my bowl of brown rice where I had some other stuff, and you know what I saw in my bowl of brown rice? I saw a bug. There was a little, tiny little bug in my bowl of brown rice, and, I, and, and it had been cooked in with my brown rice. Now, some of you may have been like, Pastor Bard, come on, just pick that thing out and just go on with your day or whatever, but you are, I, I know other cultures may do that. They may like the protein, whatever, not this guy, okay? There was a bug in my brown rice, and so I'm like, I'm not just going to pick it out. The whole bowl is defiled now, guys, to me. I threw the whole bowl out. In fact, I threw the whole batch out. I even went, we had some rice stored, and I looked, and, and, and sure enough, there had been some little bugs that had gotten in there. And you know what bugs do? Bugs are eating that rice, and bugs do what bugs do. Do you know what I'm saying? Therefore, the whole batch is defiled now. You may be thinking, man, that's a little bit of an over... I, I, that's how I roll. I'm not rolling with bugified rice. That's just not... That's how I roll, okay? I, the whole... I'm, I'm just wanting you to see that it takes... One sin to defile us. Even if you only have one sin, we're still a sinner in comparison to the holiness of God. So because of this one sin, we cannot, Scripture tells us, we cannot be in the presence of the holiness of a holy God. We were created to be in his presence, but because of our sin, we're separated by him. When Adam and Eve sinned, God said, if you choose to sin against me, Do you know what he told them? Dying, you shall surely die. You'll not only physically die, but your spirit will be separated from me because now you are defiled. So something has to happen to bring us back together, right? Something, because that's bad news. If we're made to be in creation with God, and if the bad news is we're separated from him because of our sinfulness, all right, that's bad news. Let's get into some of the good news. We have been given, and I got to tell you, this is exciting. We've been given the great privilege of God's holy presence. The ark not only shows us the problem, it shows us the answer through the privilege that we have. And I want you to see in verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months. Okay, so this guy's taken care of it. It's tucked away. And I want you to see something, guys. And this speaks of when the presence of God is is in your life. This is a message that's being sent here. I want you to see that the the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. 
what's different in this guy's household and the guys who were disrespecting it, right? There's a big difference. There's not presumption there. There is an understanding of the privilege. And God says, I bless that. I bless households that put me first. I bless people that recognize the very privilege of my presence in their lives. And, and so Obed-Edom, is, is, he's beginning to, to, to prosper. And good things are beginning to happen to his family. And I, I just want you to see God is teaching David a lesson here. So this is what we see. And I want you to see the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has, check it out, because of the ark of God. Not because Obed-Edom deserved it, but because God chose to do this. God's sending David a message. Hey, you want my blessing? Put my presence first in your life. You want my blessing over your nation as you lead this kingdom? Treat me with respect. Treat the, you know, have the beginning of wisdom is this fear of me. Understand, respect me. Don't enter into my presence. This is big. Casually. Understand who you're dealing with. This is what God is saying here. All right, so as we continue to look at this, so David went there and he brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David. Now look, church. How did he bring it in, and how did the people respond? With great, say it with me, come on now, third service, celebration, right? With great celebration. Now they were, they were realizing their celebration, why they were celebrating. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. Now, now we could just read through this, but I want you to understand it. The six steps of these men, here's what's going on. They decided we're not going to do it the Philistine way anymore. We're going to do it God's way. This is a point that we need to hear. We don't get to pick how we worship God. God is the one who determines that. It's on his terms, not ours. And he says, this is how you're to do it. So they went back to doing this the way that God had prescribed for them to do this in Exodus 25, which was these oxen are not to be doing this. You're to have people. God created it with these loops and these poles that would go in, and, the, and there would be these Levites who would carry this. They were set apart for this, and they would carry this. And you realize that every six steps, they stopped. And you know what they did? They sacrificed an animal. They sacrificed, and you're like, well, that's horrible. It is horrible, isn't it? When something or someone receives a punishment that is deserved by someone else. And this is what was going on. David recognized this, that in order to be into the presence of, the, the very presence of God, it says David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Six is the number of man. And, and here's what's being said here. This mercy seat was the most important element of this. And it's where the high priest would go in on behalf of all of the people one time a year and he would go in with much reverence and he would sacrifice an animal and that blood would be shed on this mercy seat. And do, do you realize this? That he would enter in with such reverence. They had bells on, most likely on his, on his robe that he would, and they would hear the bells, okay? And then there would be, uh, some of us were told that there would be a rope. And, and, and if God, if he went in in a disrespectful, irreverent way, they couldn't even go in because they couldn't be in the presence of the holiness of God. 
What I'm wanting us to see is that there is a privilege that we have, and the reason we have the privilege is because someone else died in the place. Those animals died the death of Uzzah. That's what I'm wanting you to see. They died the death of Uzzah. Those animals that did not deserve this, it was a horrible thing, those animals took the punishment that was a punishment for others who were sinful. And my friends, this is why we have the privilege of God's presence, because this is the gospel. Remember, everything's pointing us to Jesus. Jesus Christ, the sinless one, came. And what did Jesus do? He stood in our place. And Jesus Christ, who had never sinned, that's why, it's so per- that's why it's so important that we understand his perfection. He stood in our place, and when Jesus died for our sins, what is he called? The Lamb of God. And when Jesus died for our sins as the Holy Lamb of God, the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God, Jesus in his righteousness, for those who will believe, his righteousness is transferred and credited to our account, and And in our account, there was sin, and it's transferred and placed upon the one who was righteous. Do you see this? You make a great exchange when you receive Jesus. A great exchange to where now when you stand in the presence of a holy God, now you're able to stand not because you deserve to get to be there, but because Jesus in his grace has been shed upon you, and now his blood covers you. And now you stand with the privilege of being not only just on a Sunday, the privilege of waking up every day and experiencing the presence of a holy God. Amen? This is what is being said here. Jesus died the Uzzah kind of death. Jesus did that for you and for me. He absorbed our sin in the helm and transferred his righteousness over to us. I heard... Uh, Pastor Tony Evans tell a story uh, about a husband and wife that were out hiking and they were out in the middle of nowhere and a storm comes upon them. It's a true story. Storm comes upon them. They have nowhere to take cover and while they are there, it starts hailing and, and it was the hail that had some of the big hailstones, baseball-sized hailstones that were coming down. They had nowhere to take cover. So the husband who loved his wife, she was the love of his life, he begins to put his body over her to protect her. And, and the hail is beating them down. And they are finally down on the ground. And he is covering her with his body, absorbing hailstone one right after another They were fortunate that they were able to live, but now he bears the scars of one who loves. She was the love of his life, and he'd do anything for her to keep her alive and to save her. News media come, and they they hear about this, and they begin to talk with her, and they begin to ask her how she feels about this. And she ends up saying this. She says, every time I see these scars that are on his body, I am reminded of how much he loves me. I am reminded that he, he absorbed all of that for me. I'm reminded that he saved me, that he did this for me. And this is exactly what Jesus did, my friends, for us. Jesus stood in our place. Jesus absorbed the blows that were coming to us for us. 
Jesus Christ saved me. And you know what? When we see that and we think about that, it ought to cause us to love him all the more. Amen? It ought to cause us in our responses to, to him. And so as, as we keep moving forward here, I, w- I want you to think about this. When I consider the price that Jesus has paid, when you think about what he has done to save you, to bring you from death to life, to bring you out of addiction into freedom, to bring you out of the things that he has done for you and to give you not only eternal life, but life here with him right now. Look at this, my only reasonable response, my only reasonable response should be celebration and worship. This is what my response should be. Verse 14, and David, you Baptists are going to have a hard time with this one, right? David danced before the Lord with all his, what? With all his might, with all his might. Whether you ever dance before the Lord, whatever you do in your worship should be with all your might. All your might is a response of understanding the privilege of God's presence. And he was wearing a priestly garment. Now, we could skip by that, but this is what you should know. That's a, that's a linen ephod, and that would be basically kind of priestly underwear. David strips down in his whitey tidies, okay? And you're like, what's going on with this? Well, David was who? He was the king. And what is David what is David doing here? David's getting really undignified, isn't he? David is, is humbling himself. David was the royal king, but David was going to say, I'm not, I'm not the king, I'm just a king. And I will humble myself before, look at verse 15, before the Lord. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy. Do you hear that? Shouts of joy. The blowing of ram's horns. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, which also was David's wife, looked down from her window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, he was busting a move, wasn't he, right? She was filled with contempt for him. It says she despised him in her heart. She despised him, all right? They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the special tent that David had prepared for it. This is important. David got ready for the ark. David made preparations for the ark. David didn't enter in flippantly with the ark. He got his people ready for it. David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. Remember, somebody has to die in order to be in the presence That's why Jesus did that for us. When he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. Then he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. You're like, what's that about? I'll just tell you quickly, okay? Here's what what that means. He's giving this to them. They've been in the presence of the Lord. And what the the cake of raisins, you should know, uh, to that culture was an aphrodisiac. And if you don't know what an aphrodisiac is, you can ask Pastor Randy. He'll be out in the commons right after that. He'll be glad to tell you a little bit more about that. Um, But but here's what is essentially saying is when you welcome the presence of God in your life, there's prosperous, you're going to be prospered by God. And I'm not telling you you're going to be rich and all that, okay? What I'm saying is the presence of God, it brings fruitfulness in our lives. This is what he's saying. David is saying, go be fruitful. Go multiply the, prosper, the prosperity of God in our life, okay? 
And it says, then all the people returned to their homes. So verse 20, when David returned home to bless his own family, all right, he'd been out doing this work of God. He comes home to bless his own family. Michael, his wife, the daughter of Saul came out. They keep bringing that up, the daughter of Saul, the daughter of Saul. That's important. Came out to meet him, and she said in disgust. She didn't say, oh, honey, what an amazing day. Wow, God was moving. She said in disgust, oh, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today. Shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. Do you know what she's saying? She's saying, do you understand who you're married to? I am the daughter of Saul. We're royalty. We don't act like that. This is what she's saying. You know what you look like today, David? A commoner. You look like just the everyday people. And we're not that. You see, Saul had a problem One of his biggest problems was this. Saul cared more about what everybody else thought about him than what God thought about him and what he thought about God. He cared more about external appearances. And apparently this was a trait that was passed along to Michael. And so she's calling David out, right? And she's saying, you look like a fool out there, right? You're just a commoner. And David retorted, and this is a mic drop moment on Michael, guys. David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the, not you, not the people, the Lord, Yahweh. And I got to tell you this, I've said this in every service. I want y'all to know how much I love every one of you. I love that you're here. I love that you come to worship here and that we celebrate together. But I want to reiterate to every one of you that everything that we do and are doing here today, it's not about you. And it's not even for you. Right? And many times we can come in with a mindset that it's for us and that we're the consumer. No, you're the worshiper. He's the audience, right? We, we're to do this unto the Lord, not unto you. And so isn't it interesting that we can be critical of something that's not even really for us? We benefit from it, but it's not for you. It's for him. And so he says, I was dancing before the Lord. Now check it out. Who chose me above your father? That's where he dropped the mic and your whole family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrate before the Lord, Michael. Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish. That's even more undignified. You want me to look like royalty? I don't care if I look like royalty. What I care about is pointing people to him. And so if that's foolish, then let me be a bigger fool. This is what he's saying even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But servant girls that you mentioned, they'll indeed think I am distinguished. Here's what he's saying, guys, and this is for you and for me. He's saying, Michael, God chose me when I was nobody. When everybody else looked and they didn't see, they just saw a punk kid, God saw me. God took a person that was broken and flawed. God picked me. I'm not king today because of anything that I have done. I am king because he picked me. Because I love him. He picked me. He took a, he took a nobody 
and he made me a somebody. And I want you to understand something. This is a message for you and for me as well that when we get this, God took sinners like us, transferred, if we believe in Jesus, his righteousness to us, adopt, adopted us into his families and said, you are a son, you are a daughter of the king of the universe. You are a joint co-heir with Jesus Christ. And I think we just forget it. And so we walk in and we're either presumptuous or we're just disconnected and we haven't considered it. And we have, I'm going to tell you, we, and I can be the worst, we have forgotten how much he has done for us and what he has saved us out of. And that's how we can come in in such a casual kind of disconnected kind of way. And I'm not saying we all do this. I'm just saying all of us can be prone to this, can't we? We all can. I, I can. I can even be the preacher and I can come in in that mentality forgetting what he has saved me out of. He's saying, Michael, you care more about appearances and your dad did that. What I care about is going after the heart of God. And that's what it means to be a person after God's own heart. Some of us, when we come in here, we care more about what people think of us in our worship than what God thinks about our worship. And that's something to ask ourselves. Am I more like Saul and Michael? Or am I more like David? Ask yourself that. Am, what, am I like, am I more, what am I more like? If you want to be a person after God's own heart, then we know this. And so we see she's saying, where's your dignity? And this is what I want us to understand. David gives us the essence of what worship is. And celebration is. Worship is putting the worthiness of God on display in my life. It's putting that on display as I worship. Worship comes from the word worth-ship. Worship. That's what it comes. It's, it's, we show what is worthy to us by our expression of who it is. And by the way, we celebrate that. So my question is, what does your worship tell others about what is worthy to you? What does your worship say? And listen, I'm not trying to judge you and say you got to do it exactly a certain kind of way or be exactly like David. I get that. We all kind of come in different from backgrounds and that's wonderful. But here's the thing. If we come in and we're casual and we never consider, we just walk in without a mentality of who we're coming to worship and we all can get like this. Maybe we care more about the burritos and the, and the coffee and we're more focused on that and getting my parking spot and, you know, and we just come in and there's no consideration. And I mean this with all humility for all of us. I'm with you. If there's no consideration of who it is that we're entering into the presence of, what does that say? Is that presumption or is it a recognition of privilege? Do you know what I mean? And it's, it's convicting for me to be certain that I recognize the privilege that we get to be in the presence of a holy God. And it's not because of what I did or what you did. It's because Jesus picked you and he chose you. I know that got awkward, but I just want you to think about that, okay? If you're like, well, I'm just not very emotional, Bart. Okay, I, I, I get that. We're all different. I'm a pretty emotional person. Some of you aren't as emotional. But if we gave you a briefcase filled with a million dollars when you walked in, and if you looked in that and you saw the million dollars, and you know what, if you were just kind of like, that's cool, Bart. Thanks, man. That's good. Way to go. Thank you. Then I buy this. 
And besides, I've been to football games and I've watched some of you. And you want to talk about undignified, okay? What does it say if our expressions about what is important to us? I mean, I get excited about home runs when Adonis Garcia hits one, okay? I'm telling you that. But I got to tell you what I ought to get even more excited about. The salvation that has been provided by Jesus Christ for me and you. Do you know what I'm saying? That's what I'm wanting you to get today, okay? We're about to sing. Jesus would say to a woman who was, uh, to some men who were criticizing a woman that was washing his feet with hair, and they were criticizing her as being undignified. That's inappropriate. You should, that, and you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, do you know why she does this? It's because people who realize how much they've been forgiven, they love much. And I think, guys, he's saying to the Pharisees, you don't realize you're presuming upon the presence of God. You don't realize how much you need to be forgiven. She realizes how much she's been forgiven. Different cultures, personalities, we have distinct ways of expressing emotion. I love the multi-ethnic, culturally diverse thing that is happening in our church. I love it. Do you know why? Because it's what heaven is going to look like. And we should welcome that, amen? We want that. We celebrate that because God celebrates that. In fact, if you don't, then you need to talk to God about that because God has created all people. And it's going to be like heaven. We want it to look like heaven. And so I love that. But here's what I know is that these different kinds of, uh, these different kinds of cultures, we celebrate things differently. We express things differently. And I come from um, a fundamental Baptist background. I asked you to raise your hands earlier. That's what I came out of. And I'm thankful for the things that God did in my life. I learned a lot of great things in that church. I'm so grateful for that. In fact, that's where I got saved. But we did not we did not clap our hands in the church that I was in early on. We certainly would not raise our hands unless you had a question, okay? We didn't do that. But I want you to understand something. We're not trying to make Baptists here. We want to be scriptural. Do you realize that we are commanded by God over 20 times, commanded to raise our hands to a holy God? We are commanded by God to clap our hands to him multiple times. We are commanded by God to shout. And I remember I had just gotten saved, guys. I'd just gotten saved. And I was so excited. And we were in a church service and we were singing a song called I Surrender All. And I remember being so excited and I just wanted to raise my hands and I felt like I can't. And so, you know, I was like, man, I'm a rebel. There ain't nobody going to tell me I can't. So I raised my finger to God. I was like, I don't care what anybody else in here thinks. I raised my finger up to God. Then as, and again, it was a great church that I was in, but, but I began to understand that what I want to be is I don't want to be about a, a denomination. I don't want to be about a tradition. What I want to be about is the Bible. What does it say that we are to do? And it says that we are to worship God, whether you do that in a in maybe a more quiet and maybe you're not an expressive kind of person, whether you do it that way or whether you do it in a more loquacious kind of way, right, where you're excited and you raise your hands, this is what it should be. It should be a passionate way. It should be a passionate way with all of your might. So are you more like Saul and Michael or are you more like David? Are you filled with passion? Do you realize the privilege of the presence of God?
Pastor Danny is going to come, and we're going to sing just, just a couple songs, okay, as we close our service that way. And I want you just to bow your heads with me as we worship the Lord today. I want you to, I want you to just begin to think about what Jesus has done for you. I want you to think of how you are able to be in his presence. In fact, you're not only able to be in his presence. Do you know what scripture teaches? His very presence is within you now. And I want you to begin to celebrate that. What does your worship say about his worth to you? We thank you, Father, today for your goodness and your kindness that Lord, your grace is so evident in our lives. We deserve the wrath of God because of our sin. But Lord, you loved us so much that you absorbed the blows that should have been ours. You came as the Lamb of God that died for our sins. You stood in our place, Lord, so that we could be in your presence every day. And we... We don't ever want to get used to that. We don't want to take that for granted. Forgive us when we do. Oh, God, I pray that we would have a heart that is abandoned to you in worship by the way that we live, by the way that we celebrate. When, when unbelievers come in here, Lord, may, may this, whether they believe or not, may they recognize that you are moving and that you're doing something in the lives of your people. Pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus, our Savior. Will you stand with me as we sing for just a moment?